And so I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna run. Is that cool? Um, Stephen's been arrested. That's what happened at the end of chapter six. He's been accused of speaking against Moses, speaking against the temple. And now at the top of chapter seven, the high priest simply says, are these things so? And Stephen doesn't actually answer the charges. Instead, he gives this gigantically long sermon, as preachers are known to do when given the chance to speak. Um, And so (laughs) let's take a look at this. I think this is a really, really cool sermon. Um, He starts out where you should always start out, in humility. He starts out by saying, brothers and fathers, because he's before the high council of priests. And so he's already saying fathers. He's recognizing that they're his elders. These are people who are over him. He's giving them honor. It's a great way to start in humility. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there and into this land in which you are now living, which is the land of Israel, right? So, so far so good, right? Do you, do you think they're with him so far? Do you think they're more or less in agreement with this potential heretic sermon? They are, right? He's giving a pretty accurate account of their shared history. Um, so I think, I think he's starting well. I think they're with him. Uh, we are up to verse 5. And yet he gave him, that's Abraham, he gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. So here he's talking about God's promises to Abraham, the covenant that he's beginning to make with Abraham and one of his people. And he's bege- God's beginning to make promises. And this is a theme that Stephen's going to talk about, the prophecies that God had that related to what happened later. Uh, again, six. So he had no child, so that's Abraham again. And God spoke to this effect, saying that this offs- these offspring would be soldiers in a land belonging to others who would enslave them and afflict them for 100 years. So what's God prophesying here? Trouble, yeah, something not good. Israel's captivity in Egypt, that's right. He's prophesying, he's saying, this, this is, by the way, this is going to happen eventually to your offspring. They're going to be enslaved in Egypt. That doesn't sound that awesome. But God's letting Abraham know that despite that, here we are, verse 7 now, but I will judge the nation that they serve, said God, and after that they shall come out and worship me in this place. Again, there's that same phrase, in this place. So he's speaking of the land of Israel, the land that, the land that they are now standing in as Stephen is talking to the priests. So God has a promise to bring them to this place. And then though bad things will happen, he's still going to bring them to this place. He's going to be faithful to his promise. Um, Where are we? (laughs) Sorry, there are so many verses. Uh, Eight, thank you. And he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham became the father of Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac became the father of Jacob and Jacob of the 12 patriarchs. And so he talks about the covenant of circumcision. Now, this is very important, and it's going to come up later in the sermon. Because circumcision is a very important thing to these first century Jews. They refer to themselves often as people of the circumcision. Because it was their, the identifying mark of the covenant that they had with God. And Stephen's bringing it up now because he wants to bring it up again later. All right, so that's the opening. He talks about God's faithfulness to Abraham and how it moves on from there. Again, how do you think he's doing? 
I think, I think he's doing all right. I think he's, this is a pretty accurate, brief history of the relationship between God and the people of Israel. I think they're with him. I think the priests are like, okay, you, you understand stuff. It's clear that you have studied the Bible, okay, which is good. He wants to get on good footing with them. Then he takes a slightly different turn because so far most of the stuff has been good. The relationship between God and Abraham was great, Isaac, etc. But now verse 9, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into slavery. What? Okay, that's, that's a big negative in your history. Okay? There, there, there's something in your history that was kind of bad. Uh, the, 12 patri- the patriarchs themselves sold their bl- brother Joseph into slavery. And that's not just a little bit evil. That's like way evil. <laughs> Selling your brother into slavery and then telling daddy got killed. Like, who even thinks of that? Right? That is crazy. That is really, really bad. And so he's saying, oh, by the way, your forefathers did this super bad thing. And it wasn't just a super bad thing. They were rejecting God by doing this. Why? Because God had chosen Joseph for a special purpose. He had chosen Joseph to rule and to save the people of Israel. Now, Joseph knew this to some degree, and he didn't react the best. He was kind of cocky, right? And so if somebody's being a jerk, you might put them in their place. Maybe if you're a big older brother and you're not super nice, you might beat them up. But you don't sell them as a slave. That is way extreme. It's ridiculous. Can we all all agree that it is ridiculous? The reason I'm pushing this is because we hear this story as kids in Sunday school all the time. Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt. But it's like, that's huge. This is like a hugely bad thing. Okay? They sold their brother as a slave. Steph, sorry. You were annoying to me. I'm selling you as a slave to another country. Wow. Okay. So, so he brings up this big negative thing. The forefathers, they did this horrible thing, right? They rejected God, rejected his chosen person. And then it continues halfway through verse 9. But God was with him, him being Joseph. And so the people rejected the person God has chosen, but God was still faithful to Joseph. God was still faithful to Joseph despite what had happened, despite this bad thing that happened. God was still faithful because Joseph was faithful to God. Okay, verse 10. And rescued him, this is Joseph still, out of all of his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and all his household. And now there was a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan and great affliction. And our fathers could not find food. So here's another bad thing that happens. This one isn't really anybody's fault, though. It's just a famine. Famines happen, right? Like, bad stuff happens in life. We all have experienced bad stuff that happens in life. That's really nobody's fault. So sometimes bad bad things happen, and that's just the way it is. But God knew this bad thing was going to happen, and that's why he chose Joseph to be the person who was going to save them. But they rejected him. Okay. Uh, Verse 11. No. Verse 12. Verse 12, yes. But when Jacob heard... That there was grain in Egypt, he sent out our fathers on their first visit. And on the second visit, Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. So, again, what is happening here? The people have rejected God, rejected his person. But God was still faithful to Joseph. And despite the fact that they rejected God... God still uses Joseph to save them, which they didn't deserve, right? What do you call it when you get what you don't deserve? 
It's called mercy. When we get what we don't deserve, it's called mercy. So despite the fact that they rejected him, God still has mercy on them and allows them to come to Egypt and be saved. It's, it's very cool. shows the faithfulness of God. And continuing verse 15, And Jacob went down into Egypt, and he died, he and our fathers, and they were carried back to Shechem, laid in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a sum of sil- silver from Hamor in Shechem. So again, Joseph is show- or, uh, <laughs> Stephen is showing, hey, I know the Old Testament, I know my stuff, okay? And he's given a pretty good summary of what happened. 17, but as the time of the promise drew near, which God had granted to Abraham, the people increased and multiplied in Egypt until there arose over Egypt another king who did not know Joseph. He dealt shrewdly, that's putting it pretty mildly, right? He dealt shrewdly with our race and forced our fathers to expose their infants so that they would not be kept alive. That was when they had to toss them into the Nile and let the kids die. Okay, which is what Pharaoh decreed because the Jews were getting too big in Israel. And so this is a super bad thing. Again, another bad thing that has happened. They are now slaves. They are being <laughs> dealt with shrewdly um, by people who are keeping them as slaves. They have to kill their own babies. This is way horrible. Now, is this another one like the famine where it's, it's nobody's fault? We just became slaves. Well, Stephen is actually hinting very strongly here that no. This is not just another bad thing that happens. Do you see the parallel here that he's making between what was done to Joseph and what then happened to the people of Israel? He's showing that you reap what you sow. The children of Israel sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. And then what was the consequence of that? They all became slaves in Egypt. All of them. Stephen is showing a parallel here, and he's showing that you reap what you sow. For those who don't know what that means, sowing means you put seeds in the ground, and then they grow you know, into food, and then you reap them. So the harvest you get is based on the seeds that you plant. Right? If you plant pumpkins, you get pumpkins. If you plant selling people into slavery, you end up becoming a slave. Now, the law of sowing and reaping is woven into creation. God put it everywhere. It just exists. You reap what you sow. Uh, the Indians uh, in India mistakenly call that karma, um, and there's some stuff in there that they have wrong about that, but the basic principle is the same. You reap what you sow. Okay? Now, God does provide a way out of that. He provides a way out of reaping what you sow through um, humility and through repentance. If you repent for what you've done, God will come in and give you what you don't deserve because you deserve to reap what you sow. But God will step in and give you what you don't deserve. He'll give you mercy, and he'll say, okay, I'll stop that from happening. But we never read about Jacob's brothers repenting for what they did. When they saw Joseph, and he's like ruling Egypt, they were afraid for themselves that he was going to kill them out of revenge. But they never really repent. They never really say sorry. And so, consequently, they reap what they sow, and they all end up as slaves in Egypt. Continuing, at this time Moses was born. This is verse 20. So we're on to the next main character of the story. At this time Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sight. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed, tossed in the Nile for the gators, or crocodiles technically, uh, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians. And he was mighty in words and deeds. 
So this is another person that God has now chosen, like he did Joseph. He's chosen Moses, chosen him for a special purpose, which we know what that is. It's to rule and it's to save. And God is beginning to show his faithfulness to Moses in his life. Verse 23, when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand. And so here it is again. God raises up a person, he chooses a person, and through this person he's going to offer them help, he's going to offer them salvation, but they did not understand. They reject God yet again. And we see that here in the next verse, which I will find. Um, thank you. Then um, on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his brother thrust him, that's Moses, thrust him aside, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? So again, there's that rejection. We're rejecting the man that God has chosen, thereby rejecting God. We're opposing here. We're resisting what it is God wants to do. Okay, I'm going to pause here for just a second. We're almost halfway through. What do you think is the chief sin that Stephen is trying to point out of the people of Israel? Rejecting God, yes. I, I, would, I would argue that the rejection of God is almost the consequence of a sin that he's trying to point out, though. I'll give you a hint. Moses and God both refer to Israel as a stiff-necked people. What does that mean, a stiff-necked people? Stubborn, prideful. I think that's the easiest word for it, prideful. He's talking about pride. Back with Joseph, the children of Israel say, we don't want God to have chosen this person. We want to do it our own way. That's what pride does. Pride, say, pride says, my way, not God's way. I resist what God wants to do. I oppose what God wants to do. And so they rejected Joseph. And now here, God wants to save them through Moses, and they reject that. They say, no. They're super prideful, really, really prideful. And we'll continue to see this throughout the story. They're so prideful. It's amazing to me that they're this prideful because they're slaves. You would think that slavery would have taught them how to be humble before the Lord. But somehow it didn't. Somehow they remained incredibly prideful despite that fact. It's, it's really quite amazing. Verse 29. At this retort, Moses fled, became an exile in the land of Midian where he became the father of two sons. Now, had they not rejected Moses, could God have used him to save Israel then when he was 40 years old? Maybe. Maybe that was the plan. But they rejected Moses. He doesn't come back now for another 40 years, which is a whole other generation of people. That's speculation, but it's, it's very interesting. Um, verse 30 now. Now, when 40 years had passed, so he's 80 years old now, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. When Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight, and he drew near, and there came the voice of the Lord. So here's Moses. He's 80 years old now, older than everybody in this room, I think. So no matter how old you are, those of you who are older than me, God's nowhere near done with you yet, you folk. Okay, Moses was 80, and he started his job. So don't quit. Ever. Um, they, these guys have retired, but they haven't retired from serving the Lord. 
They've just retired from their specific job. Now, I know you're going to be ministering till probably right after you die because I think your death itself is going to be a ministry to people. And so he sees an angel and he hears the voice of the Lord. We're up to verse 32. This is God speaking now. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings and have come down to deliver them. Pause for one second. God will always hear your groanings. He will always see your affliction. Sometimes when we're going through really hard stuff, when we're being afflicted, when we're crying out, when we're groaning, we feel like God's not there. What have you done, God? You've abandoned me. I don't, you're not here. I'm going through this terrible stuff. But God never leaves you. He never leaves you. He is there in the midst of difficult things, in the midst of horrible things. 34, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt, and I've heard their groanings, and I have come down to deliver them. I've left heaven. I've come down here myself to talk to you to deliver my people. That's big. So even when sometimes we don't feel like God is there, we don't feel like he's with us because we're going through these difficult things, he's never away from us. He never leaves us. He always sees us, even when we're being afflicted, even when things are bad. That was parenthetical. That was not part of the sermon. (laughs) You can have that one for free. Okay. Uh, Continuing at the end of the verse there. And now come and I will send you to Egypt. And so we've seen the motif that he's been spinning here. And now, just in case his audience isn't getting it, Stephen really kind of like lets him know specifically what he's talking about. This Moses, whom they rejected, saying, who made you ruler and judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing signs and wonders in Egypt and at the Red Sea. Now, who do you think Stephen is trying to hint at here? God sent you this man as both ruler and redeemer, and he performed many signs and wonders. Who do you think he's drawing a parallel to? Jesus. Pretty clear. I'm pretty sure they got this one too, that he was saying. Okay, God sent you Moses to be a ruler and a redeemer. He performed many signs and wonders. You rejected him. Implying what? They rejected Jesus. And he's getting there. Okay. Uh, many sight of the waters at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years, up to verse 37 now. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up a prophet like me from your brothers. That's uh, where God prophesied through Moses about the Messiah coming. Okay? So even the guy who prophesied about the Messiah himself, who I'm about to talk about, Even him you rejected. Your pride is incredible. It is incredible. It's disgusting. 38. This is the one who is in the congregation, in the wilderness, with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles, giving them to us. You still rejected this guy. The pride is unbelievable. You, You can feel that. You can feel that. But again, everybody has to agree with what he's saying. The priests have to agree because this is just fact. This is just what happened. Okay? Uh, 39, our fathers refused to obey him, thrust him aside, and in their hearts turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us off from Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. 
Okay, so again, recapping a little bit. God set up Joseph to be a ruler and to help them. He rejected them. He stayed faithful to Joseph, but God still give them, gave them mercy and used Joseph to save them. The same thing happened with Moses. God chose Moses. They said, no, God, we're going to do something better. We're going to do our way, which is way better than yours. They reject Moses. He still uses Moses. He still has mercy on them to use Moses to save them, to save them from Egypt. And now they reject him again to the point where they're worshiping other gods. So their pride is just out of control at this point. And God is like, uh, it's, sorry, it's too far now. The, the mercy ran out. Verse 41, they made a calf in those days and they offered a sacrifice to the idol and they were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Verse 42, but God turned away. But God turned away. I think these are the four scariest words in the Bible to me. But God turned away. The idea that we could be prideful enough, we could choose ourselves instead of him enough, we could resist him enough that he would turn away. That, that gives me the shudders. Okay? I don't ever want this to be said of me. I want to deal with my pride I, so that this doesn't happen. I do not want this to happen to me. But God turned away. He gave them over to worship the host of heaven, as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? You took up the tent of Moloch and the star of your god, Raphan, the images that you made to worship, and I will send you into exile beyond Babylon. And so again, you reap what you sow. Just as selling Joseph into slavery and rejecting a god made sure that Israel was themselves going to become slaves in the same place of Egypt. So now, worshiping all these strange foreign gods, God's like, all right, you can do that. I'll give you over to these gods, and you're going to end up living over there as exiles in Babylon because you reap what you sow. When you don't repent. It's horrible. Verse 44. He changes tones here now, and it seems weird. I'm just going to read it, and then I'm going to talk about it. 44, our fathers had the tent of witness, that's the tabernacle he's referring to, in the wilderness, just as he spoke directly to Moses to make it, according to the pattern that he had seen. Our fathers, in turn, brought it in with Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers. And so it was until the days of David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. So he's talking about a dwelling place for the Lord. First they built a tabernacle, and then they built a temple, a place for God to dwell. Verse 48, yet the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by human hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or a place will be my rest? Did not my hand make all things? Now this seems like a really weird turn. He's talking, going from the history of Israel to talking about a tabernacle and a temple. Why do you think that is? He's making a big point that God doesn't dwell in a place made by human hands. And he never intended to. He intended to do something else. He intended to dwell bodily in the person of Jesus Christ, the full image of God, and then to dwell in us through the Holy Spirit. And he's, that's what he's hinting at, but he doesn't say it, because he's trying to make a point. He's hitting this hard, this whole issue of the temple. Why is that? I think it's because he is getting at the root cause of their pride, because this whole thing is about pride. 
Your pride is so crazy, you keep rejecting God. The big pride that the Jews had in that day was that the temple had just been rebuilt. The temple had just finally been rebuilt. After hundreds and hundreds of years, in their generation, the temple was rebuilt. Just now. It was rebuilt by Herod the Great. Herod the not-so-great, as I call them, because he's the king who killed all the babies in Bethlehem when Jesus was born. Okay, Herod the not-so-great built the temple. It's called Herod's Temple, which is disgusting. It's not even called God's Temple. It's called Herod's Temple. It had just been rebuilt. And they were like, we have the temple back. We're doing the sacrifices again. Everything is awesome. We're the best Jews ever. We're totally keeping the covenant God's way on our side because we got the temple back. So they were really, really prideful. We are 100% right on everything. We got the temple to prove it. And Stephen is like, God's not there. And they were not happy with what Stephen says. But they can't argue with what God says in Isaiah, which is what he quotes here. Heaven is my throne, earth is my foot, so what kind of house will you build for me? Says the Lord. Or what place will be my rest? Did not my hands make all things? And so they can't argue with the prophet, but they definitely do not like what Stephen is saying because he's punching right in the center of their pride. This thing you're prideful about, it's not even right. Okay. They're, they're like super happy. They love it. It's the best sermon they've ever heard. Uh, so here's this big finale. I'm just going to read this through, and then we'll go back and pick it, pick at it. Starting in 51. You stiff-necked people. You can just feel the prophetic. T- this is Stephen the prophet rising up. He sounds just like John the Baptist, just like Jesus. They say almost the same stuff. I could pick out the verses, but we don't have time. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, which is the Messiah, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. This is a stab to the face, basically, of the religious institution. Okay, remember, he's talking to the high priests, the people that killed Jesus. He is under arrest. The, the courage of Stephen in this instance is amazing. First of all, this is an incredible sermon. All these different parallels and all these different things she's, she's showing back and forth. It's a great job. Way to go, buddy. Um, and, and it, it's, but he just nails it at the end. He doesn't say, therefore, I'm, I'm a good Jew and we, we should all get along and all this kind of stuff. And he's like, no, 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 you guys stink. You stiff-necked people. There's 51. He hits it right on the head. It's pride. It's pride. It's pride. It's always been pride. You've always been prideful. You still are. You stiff-necked people. Uncircumcised in heart and ears. Ooh, remember, he talked about circumcision at the beginning. That's the physical sign of the covenant between God and his people. They are the people of the circumcision. And he is saying, you may be outwardly circumcised, but you are uncircumcised of heart and ears. Where it really matters, you're not in covenant with God. You might have an outward act of a covenant with God, but you're not really in covenant with God in your heart. And you don't hear anything that God says. That is not cool to say to a Jew. Uh, Uncircumcised in heart and ear. First century Jew. I'm not talking about current people. Um, You always resist the Holy Spirit. You always resist the Holy Spirit. That's what they're doing every single time here because that's what pride does. Pride resists God. The problem with pride is it blinds us. So we don't even know we're doing it half the time. We think we're doing the right thing. The, the priests thought they were doing the right thing. They thought they were serving God. 
because they were so prideful that it blinded them. They couldn't even see what they were doing, that they were totally rejecting God, resisting the Holy Spirit at every turn. That's what pride does. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. All this stuff we just talked about, boom, time and time and time and time and time again. Now you're doing it again, right now. You just did it. You're doing it this very second. <laughs> Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Name one, because they persecuted them all. They killed most of them. Jesus, again, he said the same thing. He said, I longed to gather you, O Jerusalem, as a hen gathers her chicks. Wonderful motherly metaphor there. God gathering the chicks, comforting them, protecting them. But you would not, you who kill the prophets and murder those who are sent to you. So Stephen clearly studied the words of Jesus, and he's clearly filled with the same spirit of prophecy that John the Baptist and Jesus were. As your fathers did, so did you. Which of the prophets did you not persecute? And they killed those who announced the coming beforehand of the righteous one. Even the people who prophesied about the Messiah they killed. The Messiah, which, by the way, you have now betrayed and murdered. That guy came, and you betrayed and murdered him just like you did everybody else. You missed it. You totally missed God. Because you resist the Holy Spirit because you're so stinking prideful. And you don't even know it. The righteous one whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the laws delivered by angels but did not keep it. You think you're the good Jew? You're not. Because you're not really keeping the law. You're not really keeping covenant with God in here. You're just doing all this religious stuff. Because you're so full of pride, all you do is resist God. And then, <laughs> as if to completely validate and prove Stephen's entire sermon, what do they do? They kill the prophet Stephen. It would be beautiful, except that he dies. <laughs> I'm not going to talk about the death of Stephen. I'm going to leave that for Joe and Bob. Because um, I want to talk about this issue of pride. Pride is gross. It's disgusting. And it blinds us. It's sort of like a kind of deception. Like when you're deceived, by definition, you don't know when you're deceived. Right? It's like the definition of deception. Oh, I know I'm deceived. What? That's it's literally impossible <laughs> for you to know that you're deceived. So when... Pride brings with it a kind of deception. It blinds our eyes so that we don't see that we're being that prideful. They did not think they were killing God. They did not think they were resisting the Holy Spirit. They thought they were doing the right thing. They were bl How could they be so blind, we say, as we read back? You know, because we're not them. We don't understand. It's very easy to judge them. It's very easy to look back and totally judge them. But what if we were them? Would we have done the same thing? Maybe. After all, most of them did. Most of them resisted God and the Holy Spirit because of that pride. It blinds us. That pride blinds us. It's disgusting. It's crazy. And now we look at this and say, well, thank God I'm not as prideful as these folks, which is true, and praise God for that. But uh, we're all still prideful. Do you know that? We know that, right? You know we're all still prideful? Is that still a secret? Or is it out? We all have pride, right? Each and every one of us has pride in our lives. And what does pride do? It resists the Holy Spirit. Even if it's little stuff. Pride in little things. Still resists the Holy Spirit. I know about you, but I don't want to resist the Holy Spirit at all. I don't want to resist the Spirit even in little stuff. Does anyone agree with me that they would like to not resist the Holy Spirit in anything? but cooperate fully with God and with what he wants to do in us and through us. 
To do that, we need to get rid of our pride. We've got to get rid of it. But the problem is we can't see it because it blinds us. So how do we get rid of something we can't see? Err, this is frustrating. Um, well, fortunately, the answer is pretty easy. It's humility. Humility is not only the opposite of pride, it's the cure. Humility is the cure for pride. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, and I don't mean just one time. I mean, I'm talking about a lifestyle of humility. We are humbling ourselves before the Lord all the time. That's who we are. That becomes who we are and how we live in humility before the Lord. Eventually, we will say, God, I have pride in my heart. I know it's there. Of course it's there. But I can't see it. I want to get rid of this, God. Will you please have mercy on me? Because I deserve to wallow in the fruits of my pride. I deserve to reap what I sow. But would you have mercy on me by revealing to me what this pride is? Take the blinders off. And he always answers this prayer. And I mean, I guarantee it. I will pay you cash money. <laughs> he always answers this prayer. He might not answer it instantly, but if you continually persist in humility before the Lord, asking him to show you the areas that you have pride, to take those blinders off, he will do it. Absolutely guaranteed. And sometimes it takes persistence, especially if we've been living in a place that hasn't been particularly humble. We may need to walk out that humility a bit and demonstrate it, kind of prove it to God. Yes, we really are humbling ourselves. We really mean it. God will take the blinders off and he'll show us the area of pride. And it might look something like this. It has with me many times um, when... I'll just be going along, and God will be like, hey, you know that thing you did? That thing you said? He'll put his finger on me. That was pride. Right there. That thing you did. I'll be like, oh. Hopefully, I'll be like, oh. If I'm prideful, I'll be like, no, it wasn't. No, I wasn't pride. I did it for this and this reason. It was perfectly justified. That's what we do most of the time. Again, it's a secret, but that's what we do. Okay. But if we are truly walking in humility and we're growing in humility, we'll say, oh, God, I'm sorry. If you say that was pride, I believe you, even if I don't believe you. I'm going to choose to do it anyway. <laughs> so, Lord, help me get rid of this. Help me get rid of this pride. And then some time will go on and you'll do it again. And God will be like, boop, did it again. That pride thing, you said what you said, prideful still. Same thing. You say, oh, yes, okay, I see it now. I'm getting it. I'm getting it. And that might happen a few times. It's okay. Don't condemn yourself, okay? Your cooperation with God, it takes time. And then eventually, you'll be about to do or say that thing, and you'll be like, and God will go, whoa, 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 whoa. And you'll go, no. I'm not going to say it. I'm not going to do it. And you stop yourself beforehand. And that's when you celebrate with the Lord, okay? And that's how we grow. It's just a process of walking with the Holy Spirit. That's how we grow. It's simple. But we walk in humility we continue to ask God to show us these areas of pride in our life. Um, just uh, last night, <laughs> I'll confess one of mine. Just last night, I was preparing worship and preparing the message. See, in, for me, a lot of times it's not like something I do or say is purely prideful, like 100%. It's that pride is mixed in. Dash of pride. Big pile of selfishness. And then here's the result. And so... There's a little bit mixed into the motivation behind it. Why am I doing this? Mostly out of good motivation. But there's a little bit of pride in there too. Okay? So I'm preparing the message and, and the, the worship, and I know that you guys are going to be here. And, and God's just like, a little bit. 
of your excitement about leading worship and preaching tomorrow is because Steve and Betty are there and you want them to be proud of you. I know. <laughs> but a little bit of it was bad. A little bit of it was the bad kind of pride. Just a little bit. Sprinkled in there. Just a little too much Nate in that pie. <laughs> and God is like, that's prideful. If you keep that in your heart when you lead worship and preach, it will somehow, in some way, resist me. That's not good. My job here is to let the Holy Spirit flow. Not to resist him. And so I confessed it. And I said, God, I don't want to resist the Holy Spirit. I want you to move. So help me get rid of this prayer. Okay? So that's me humbling myself, confessing something. Bob. That is, in fact, the plan right now, Bob. You are right with me. You are not like the stiff-necked people at all. So this is what I'd like to do. I'd like to lead us into a prayer right now of humility and of humbling ourselves because we've all got some of this pride. Um, I can't make you humble yourself. But if you would like to do it, I'm going to pray a prayer and you just agree with me in this prayer. And if you want, um, throughout the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, when people are humbling themselves before God, they perform a physical demonstration of humility to echo the demonstration of their heart. And they get down on their knees. They get themselves lower. And so if you want to, don't make this a religious thing. But if you would like to, as we are praying to humble ourselves now, I'd encourage you, get on your knees or sit on the floor. If your knees are bad like mine, I'm going to sit on the floor. And pray this prayer with me. Let's all close our eyes. I'm going to get down. Father God, you are great. You are the great I am. You are the king of heaven and earth. You are the creator of the universe. I am not. I am a broken, humble servant before you right now. And I thank you for all the many gifts you've given me. I thank you that you allow us to repent and that you are willing to have mercy on us and to come and to help us get rid of our pride. So Holy Spirit, I ask you to have mercy on me right now. And I ask you for a spirit of revelation. Send a spirit of revelation to my heart right now. and Show me, Holy Spirit, the areas of my life that have pride. Maybe it's a lot of pride. Maybe it's just a taint. Show me, Lord. Take the blinders off and show me the areas of my life where I have pride right now. Let's just take a minute just to listen to what the Lord might say.
Humility is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not something that can be imparted through a prayer. It's something we have to do, we have to agree with as an act of our own free will. So I can't pray humility upon you, but I am going to bless you. And so receive this benediction such as it is. I bless you with more of a desire to walk humbly before the Lord. And I bless you with more of a desire not to resist God in your life. Not to resist whatever it is he wants to do, however big or however small. And I bless you with the mind of Christ. I bless you with the ability to see and think like Jesus does so that you can see without blinders the areas where your motivations are maybe tainted a bit by pride so you can get those out of the way. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we believe revival's coming and that a huge outpouring of the glory and presence and spirit are coming. We don't want to resist the Holy Spirit. And so if we are going to be good stewards of what it is God is giving us, we really do need to deal with this pride issue in our lives, however big or small it might be. And I grant you it's bigger than you think. There was a period of time a number of years ago where I thought, I think I've graduated. I think I'm kind of done with pride. (laughs) And I thought I said that in humility. And I'm looking back now and I'm just like, oh my gosh. Like, so bad. Not even close to done. Like, there were whole regions, giant regions of my soul that hadn't even been touched yet with getting rid of this pride thing, okay? Um, We all have uh, a process to do in this. And as God is going to come with more of his spirit, I really encourage you to spend some time in prayer about this and to try to humble yourselves as much as possible to allow God to remove these things that stand in the way. Because as the spirit comes and wants to flow through you to bless those around you, all these little blockages hamper that from happening, right? So the more we can get that out of the way, the less we resist God, the more we cooperate with it, which is what he wants. Um, We're a few minutes over, so if you need to leave, obviously you're welcome to do so. But if not, if you want to talk a little bit, just for a couple minutes with each other, here's what I would encourage you to do. This might make you not want to do it, but I would encourage you to do it anyway. The Bible says, confess your sins to one another. Don't. Okay, but the Bible actually says it, so we want to agree with it. We want to obey to confess your sins to one another, especially because confessing your sins is a very humbling thing to do, and we're actually talking about humility, so I feel like like it's kind of particularly important this morning. So if you feel like you have, like God has shown you an area of pride in your life, maybe it was just now, maybe he showed it to you before. If you don't know one in particular, that's okay. But if you feel like God maybe showed you one, go ahead and share that. Confess your sins to one another. And that in and of itself is an act of humility, which is a good thing. And it helps us to get rid of that kind of stuff, okay? So let's talk to those near us. And if we have issues of pride, confess that or talk about what we talked about. I just want to give one illustration. When I was uh, retiring at church, they said that I was uh, one of the most humble pastors they had ever worked with or known. Of course, I was the only pastor there for 26 years, so they didn't know anybody else, right? (laughs) So they gave me an award for humility. That is the greatest thing I've ever seen in my life. But then, then I wore it, so they had to take it away. <laughs> I was very proud. But, you know, I was kind of proud when they said I was very humble. And I thought, that's weird. That is weird. <laughs> that's weird. It's weird. Yeah. And some of that is good. Yeah. Proud in the sense of, like, yes, I'm growing. 
I'm glad I'm humble. I'm glad I have more of that fruit of the Spirit in my life. That is a good thing. But maybe there is a little bit of Steve sprinkled in there. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. So, yes. So and we could do a whole that, sermon on that. Humility is not self-deprecation. Humility is complete agreement with God. Exactly. That is and it. That's, that's all it is. Exactly. Humility is agreement with God. And we, we bring ourselves low so that we can come into agreement with God because we usually agree with ourselves more than we agree with God. But we want to come into agreement with God, which is humility. And God says he has adopted you as a child and an heir of Jesus Christ. You're an heir of the king of kings. That makes you a prince or a princess. That is the truth of what God says about you. And it is not pride to believe it. It is humility to believe it. And that sounds weird to us. I am a prince or a princess in the kingdom of God. But it is true because God says it's true. Sometimes false humility ruins a lot of what God wants to do because false humility is just pride. Oh, I'm not worthy of that. Oh, I'm not worthy of all that kind of... No, God said you're worthy of it, so you are. If you disagree with that, you're saying, no, I know more than God. I'm not worthy, God, even though you say I am, so no, I will not receive from you. God is saying, you're worthy because I said you are. If you were humble, you would agree with that. So yes, I agree. Humility doesn't always look the way we think it in our minds, especially us who derive from a Scandinavian culture. Because we have a very weirdly oppressive, forcing us to humble ourselves type of a cultural heritage, which is really gross and mostly not good. But I love being Norwegian.